So, how are you? I am awesome. Welcome back. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, just to give you all a catch up, we are talking with Stephen Williams. Um, he is my biological cousin, and he is also an ordained minister, elder. What is your official title of? Um, well, um, officially, well, I didn't say officially, um, I am, uh, I have ordination to preach, so I'm an ordained minister. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, in our last talk, we talked about, um, a little bit about both of our journey as far as um, our family story, um, seminary training, working with youth. Um, so today I want to just kind of continue this conversation and let's see where it goes. Um, there are still some pieces not been told. Mm -hmm. Um so where would you like to begin today's conversation? Or are you going to let me just fish for it? I'll just fish for it. I, I'm, okay. I was trying to, uh, as I was driving home from work today, I was trying to figure out, okay, where did we leave off last? And I, I for the life of me, I couldn't remember. So I guess any place is as good as any. Okay. Um, so one of the things that I think that is, um, that we did talk about last time that's really huge in both of our stories is um, the philanthropic piece, the working with youth piece. Um, all of our aunts and uncles and our parents are all involved, have always been involved. So I think we kind of learned that um, as just part of how we exist. Um, I can remember our aunts say, but for the grace of God, there right. go I. Um, and I always thought, isn't that really bad grammar? Um, because one thing you'll have to know about Stephen and I both, we are extremely analytical. Yeah. So in the process, other people having 12 random thoughts, we are in really like unpacking that one thing that caught our attention. Um, and we're probably one of maybe two or three people that can actually have the conversation um, and it not be a thing. Right. It's just, you know, um, one of the things that I always tell people about um, that I hate that academia has lost, and that is the art of debate. Oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> yeah, I was, I was actually thinking about that for our conversation today. Um, so bring it up. Yeah. Well, and I think it's very important theologically. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, during the, um, the seminary journey, you have to read a lot of theologians right. and try to remember who believed what. And, and you end up picking bits and pieces of this that seems sound to you and that that does not seem sound to you. But in the context of what I was saying about our aunts, um, and when I say that in plural, just so you all know, they're identical twins. So um, unless I'm referring to one of, of, of the other, um, this is something that they just both said. But when they said, but for the grace of God, there go I, I used to always think, what are they doing? Right. But it was that mechanism, aside from what seemed like horrible grammar at the time, um, that mindset of gracious empathy mm -hmm. um, to be able to help people to be in a space to understand that the stories that sometimes our culture wants to look down on, it really could have been any single right. one of us. Um, and I think being raised around that kind of understanding of interacting with people has made most of us um, because almost all of our cousins are doing something with the exception of maybe one or two are doing something 
connected to kind of paying it forward and giving back because that's just how we were raised. Um, So theologically, to have the discussion or the debate, you, if you will, about various topics, I always kind of come back to that level of for another person's journey and story and maybe just the cards that they've been dealt. Um, so when we talk about how you have framed your theology, um, you and I have taken a very different path um, in our journey theologically. Right. Um, it's interesting to have read and discussed and had all of that and come to this place where we we still see, um, if you will, um, the moral foundation, mm-hmm. but theologically, we have a point, I guess, I hate to say of departure, because that sounds like we're um, at odds, mm-hmm. and I don't think we're at odds. I think we respect mm-hmm. that we see it differently, and we continue the conversation. Right. Um, so at this point, I think I've kind of laid out some stuff and I'll let you pick up jacks and take what you want out of that. Right. So, um, yeah, like you said, there's, there's a, there are a lot of things that we agree on as far as, um, you know, uh, I guess you would, you would say, uh, the, the humanistic, uh, I almost say humanistic, I'm sorry, the, the humanism of, um, of our of, of our given faith tradition, um, but there comes a point where there is a, di- a a divergence, and I guess I'll speak to the commonalities first. You know, um, we were both raised to have a heart for people. Um, we were both raised to um, you know with a great deal of uh, empathy. You know, to be able to. Uh, look at a person who is different or less fortunate and really say, you know, I I can't be that person to judge because, um, you know, at any point I could be that person. And so my job of it. And that's the but for the grace of God. Um, And so uh, to put it in a a different way, um, I've been, reading this book called uh, How to See. And it's about, uh, well, the parts that I'm reading now are about how we perceive things. And the author um, uses a lot of imagery to um, to talk about perception. And one of the things that I, I read uh, the last couple mornings is, you know, imagine, um, you know, you're, somewhere out west, say out in the Rockies, and you're walking down this road and you come across uh, this lake that is um, perfectly reflecting the mountain range. You know, you really can't tell where the, which one is the reflection and which one is the actual mountain range. And he asks the question, why is it that the lake um, reflects the mountain so perfectly? It's because the lake is calm and it allows the light that is, you know, coming off of that mountain to give a clear picture. And so he compared that to our perception of the world and the people around us. You know, if mm. you look at a person and you start at the point of that is a human being, okay, not a black human being or a white human being or a gay or straight human being, but just a human being, then you have an accurate reflection in your perception about where you start with that person. But what happens is, and he went on to say, if you throw a rock into that lake, then the picture gets distorted and you don't see it clearly. And so when we come to view people with our you know, preconceived notions about what it means to be black, what it means to be white, gay, straight, whatever, then we have a distorted image of that person and we don't see the human being and that affects how we treat them. And so 
one of the things that we're that we you and I have been brought up to do is to see the human being and treat them as a human being and everything else is just secondary and as hard as that is I admit it, it's really hard to sometimes because you just have some people that make it difficult for you to you know that's such an to, understatement to, to see them as to, to to focus on their humanity <laughs> but you know yeah, some people yeah, make it, it hard. It really does take practice. And, um, you know, working with, with youth who come from difficult situations and they come with all of their, you know, their baggage and their, their trauma and everything. And it's, you know, up front and center. It, it, it's difficult at times to to see through that and to understand that there is a, a hurting, traumatized human being behind all that. And one of the things that I have to remind myself um, as an educator is, um, you know, at one time I had it on my computer screen or on my phone someplace. But it's, it, it was simply this saying, your students go through hell just to walk through the door. You know, mm-hmm. and yeah. so it's, it's a, go ahead. And that, that I, I, I need I need something with that on it that that says that like. For my mm-hmm. office because because I think a lot of times um, working in a facility um, that a lot of times people forget that they've already been through so much that's why right. they're here um, yeah so. and and t- to go back to your um, your analogy of the lake and and the mountain range one of the things I, in case nobody knows, I'm a hobby photographer, so I take a lot of pictures, especially when I'm traveling. And one of the most fascinating things to me is the view from the window mm-hmm. of a plane. And depending on the clarity of the sky, sometimes you can see out across the ocean. And I have pictures that I've taken through the airplane window out across the ocean and the thing that like I had one day that this is how people get right and wrong confused Mm -hmm. because when you're looking out from the ground you can clearly see oh I'm on the ground and this is the sky but when you're looking out across the ocean I and the water seemed to merge. You cannot tell which is which. And I actually had some of the pictures that I've taken printed out and showed them to people and asked them, which one is the sky and which one is the water? And unless they can find something to gauge that by, like um, a piece of a land mass or um, a portion of the wing of the plane or something, they have a lot of trouble determining up and down like which way is up and I always say to them that's how people right. drown and they look at me and go what mm-hmm. <laughs> I said if you can see your way to where air is you would naturally get there you you just right. would the inability to see how to get to air or the strength to get there is how you drowned. And that can be emotionally, spiritually, intellectually. We have to remember that the person's perspective is what they're functioning through. Yeah, that's true. Um, And uh, I think the other part of that is when we're talking about perspective and perception, uh, something else that I've been reading is um, is. In case y'all don't know, he reads a lot of books. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm constantly reading something. I mean, I I probably read like four or five books at a time. But one of the things that I do too, but I just don't finish them anymore. Uh, like I used to finish them. If I don't finish them in two days, it's probably not going to happen. Right. But uh, one of the uh, things that I that I've been reading also, you know, concerning our perspective or our perception is that um you know the the way we interpret reality is or i should say the way we interpret our our, our perceptions um 
is not objective. It, it's always based on something that uh, we have preconceived or an idea about what we're looking at. Uh, to give you an example, um, you're driving to work one day and, you know, you're happy, you know, listening to the radio and the songs and the music's got you going and everything, and you're just in a happy place. And then all of a sudden, somebody cuts you off at a high rate of speed, and you may have to slam on your brakes to keep from, you know, crashing into them or do some other type of defensive maneuver. And without even knowing why the person did what they did, your mind, based upon what it's perceived or uh, uh, its uh, its uh, experience starts interpreting the event for you. You know, this person cut me off because, you know, they're an SLB. This person cut me off because they weren't paying attention to, to where they were going and so forth and so on. But you really have no idea why that person did what they did. Okay, wait. Um, just to stick a pin in it, I'm not sure that SLB is a theologically sound term. Yes, it is. <laughs> It is a theological term. Yes, Who it, knew? it is. Just don't ask me. Who which, knew? Just don't ask me which theology it comes from. I, I forgot. I, um, it's funny how that selective memory works at times. <laughs> right. But but yeah, you know, you know, our mind interprets a lot, and you know, so the 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 thing that the the author says is that you know, you always have to stop and arrest that. Um, that thought process and understand uh, even to the point of just telling yourself this is just my perception of what's going on but it's not necessarily reality Um, you know this person may be having a heart attack this person may be trying to get their wife to the hospital but it doesn't necessarily mean that because he got this person cut you off that they're you know driving recklessly for no good reason um, you never know why the person did it, but to bring it back to just, you know, regular instances, you know, you could, you know, walk into work one day and again, be happy, go lucky and say hello to someone. And they just, you know, look at you and like, huh, and walk off every day, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, um, you know, you have to sort of step back from that and say, well, I don't know why that person is acting that way toward me. It could have been something that happened to them outside, but you don't always interpret what you perceive as, or how you interpret that experience as what's actually going on. And I think that's what uh, a lot of people miss when they're dealing with, with human beings is it's, you know, whenever something goes wrong, it's always, I shouldn't say always. We take it too personally. We take it too personally, exactly. You know, so, um, but again, you know, also when uh, we see someone that is different than us, you know, what we perceive is not always, you know, how we, uh, we were, uh, interpret our perception isn't always uh, reality. Is it or is it not? Because now it sounds like we're headed toward, um, what is it, Plato's? Plato's cave. Uh, Plato's cave. Because I think... I, to give the the ocean sky analogy again, I think you and I exact same thing. Understand the theological implications of it, but we we see where the cave and where the light is is at in different places. Right, exactly. Yes, yeah. Which is truly amazing because, like, when you look at at a picture of it, you go, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's, you know, you have this false image. You have, in case you haven't seen it, um, you all can Google it. Sister Google knows everything yes, except for what you're exactly looking for. Mm-hmm. And uh, Google has, Google does not know big words. I'll just leave it at that. No, it doesn't. <sighs> I mean, I sometimes I'm looking for something, you know, philosophical or theological and it wants to give me a restaurant down the street I'm like <laughs> no I don't want chicken right. right I like chicken but that's not what I'm looking for right. um but but Plato's cave if you um to to give you a generic description of it there is the this what seems to be reality 
and this stuck place in what seems to be reality. But very close from another angle, you see outside um, and realize that, oh, what you thought was reality is really more of a stuck place. Right. Um, And so, as I said, you and I can look at that exact same image, get the theological implications of it, but what you and I interpret as the cave and the light is different. Right. Um, so I'll let you go from there. Right. And so I, I guess for now we're talking about our point of divergence. Um, so uh, I'll take a step back. You know, I, um, I, I, I went into, uh, let me even go back further than that. You know, um, I grew up, uh, my father was a pastor or is a pastor. He's still alive, still pastoring a church. And uh, my mom is a, is a, is a minister, a preacher too. And so I grew up in that household, and I have to, I have to be, I have to describe this uh, accurately. You know, my parents um, are uh, conservative Christians, but um, they were always the, they were the parents who taught me what they believed. Um, they took me to church with them every Sunday. Um, I did Bible study on Wednesday nights and went to vacation Bible school, all that. So, uh, but the one thing that they always said was, you know, this is something that you have to make up um, on your own, in your own mind, whether you believe or not. You know, so it was truly left up to me to decide what I believed. So like any other child, um, you know, um, can I, can, I want you to, but I want to just throw something into the pot, if you will. Um, and I don't know if you'll get to it and what, and where you're going with this, but I am always amazed at, um, I I just think there should be a high IQ church. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I'm, I'm just going to leave that like laying on the (laughs) table the elephant okay. in the room and I'll let okay. you continue. Go so, ahead. um, so yeah, so, um, you know, I, um, I, my parents, they, they always, uh, left the, um, for lack of a better, uh, way to put it, free thought was not discouraged. Um, so that's pretty much how I was. Uh, you know, you said we, you and I are very analytical. I've been like that since I was a child, you know. Um, so like any other child, you know, uh, even though I was very analytical, I had lots of questions. I believe what my parents told me because they were my parents. Um, I had no reason not to believe them, you know. Um, now, at what age are we talking? Are we talking pre-adolescence? We're talking like from the time I understood anything that they were saying to about the time um, I got to be about uh, 14 or 15 years old. Okay. Okay. So I was like any other child, you know, I believed what my parents told me because they, they were my parents. I didn't have any reason to believe that they were lying to me. Um, and, or that they were saying anything that was untruthful. But there always comes a time in a, um, in, a, uh, in, a, in a child's life where they start to have questions about what their parents are teaching them. And that usually, if, if things go the way they normally do, that usually... Well, let's say it usually comes. Sometimes it comes at a very early, early age. Sometimes it's like at six, and sometimes it's not until you know their teenage years. But um, depends on how many whoopings you get for asking the wrong question. <laughs> exactly right. Right, right, right. I mean, I, I I'm not going to say that ever happened, but <laughs> it it, no, 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 it can right. it can be possible to happen. Right. But so, continue. So um, so probably I would say. About the time I hit middle school and uh, started paying attention in school, um, I saw that there was... started paying attention. Say again. 
You started paying attention? Yeah, it was just about middle school. I started paying attention in school. And, um, you know, uh, there just started to become a conflict between the things that I was learning in church and the things that I was learning in school. And, um, you know, I would ask my parents, I'd ask my teachers, um, and all of their answers were in conflict with one another. And so as, uh, you know, all the way through high school, I had all these questions and uh, with all these conflicting answers. Um, but there was one thing that my, my dad would always say to me is that, you know, these are, you know, these are things that you have to believe by faith. And again, it was my, you know, it was my, my parents who said these things. And so that's what I did. I just accepted them by faith. Um, but as I continued to learn um, you know, contradictory information and all of this, the questions just kept growing in, a, in, in number and in the depth of their scrutiny. And um, by the time I hit seminary, I was like, good, all right, this is a place where all of my questions and doubts and concerns are going to be answered. And I think from the first time I uh, hit the systematic theology class. I realized that that was not going to be the case. What was going to be the case is that my doubts and concerns and questions were just going to grow. Um, and that my dad was, uh, was right. Was that, you know, this is definitely something that you just can't believe because someone told you that it's true. It's someone that you, it's something that you really have to um, buckle down and decide what it is that you actually believe and don't believe. Um, and so when I was in seminary, um, all the questions that I had, I, I focused on those questions. And I also learned, you know, got, uh, you know, within the uh, Christian education track and um, worked in a church, taught, you know, Sunday school and I was a minister of education in two different churches, one in Kentucky, one in uh, one in Florida. And, um, you know, it just got to a point where the the cognitive dissonance that I was experiencing. That's what I was getting ready to ask you. I I mean, when you start talking about Hammurabi's code, I would just love to have been sitting (laughs) right So, um, you know, my cognitive dissonance just reached critical mass probably about, oh, I'd have to say around 2009. And um, I I was literally sitting on the beach um, here in Fort Lauderdale and one question came up in my mind and it was, do you really believe the things that you've been taught about your faith tradition? And as a matter of honesty, uh, the answer came up, no, I I don't believe these things. Um, And it it wasn't, you know, it wasn't me thumbing my nose at, at God or being in open rebellion. It's just that there's just too many unanswered questions, uh, too much contradictory information that um, that I couldn't balance. And you know, I, I spoke about this with everyone that I know I knew to to talk with it about. And um, you know, the only answers I was getting was you know, pray about it, have faith. You know, some people. Um, you know, they got angry with me and questioned whether I were, you know, whether I actually believed at all ever. And, um, you know, so that none of that really helped me. You know, the more I prayed about it and studied, the more the questions came. You know, um, people would tell me, well, you just need to forget all that stuff that you read in seminary and just read the Bible. It's like, okay, so I did that. And it didn't make it even better. It didn't make it any better, you know. Because the more I read, the more questions I had, because I'm the type of reader, you know, um, I scrutinize everything that I read. I remember things, you know, um, and when something doesn't make sense, I don't 
bury it. I don't push it to the side. I'm like, well, why does it say A in one section of the book and then contradict itself in another section of the book? And if it's a contradiction, it's a contradiction in my mind. There's, you know, unless, I mean, until there's some way to rectify the contradiction, it remains a contradiction. Um, and when I read the Bible, give I, us give us an example of that uh, biblically. Biblically, okay. So um, the the simplest one that I can think of off the top of my head is um, if you I believe if you read Paul's the Apostle Paul's account of who saw Jesus at the tomb or who was the first to see Jesus at the tomb, who was it? Oh, is this a quiz? It's a question, yes. Oh, wasn't it Mary and Martha? That's not what Paul says. Well, somebody said that, right? It's, Isn't it's that in somebody one of the answer? Gospels, yes. Do I get like 50% <laughs> yeah. on this quiz? No. Um, but uh, so, okay. yeah. In the gospels, okay, so in the gospels, you're right. Contradiction. It, it, what is? Because Paul wasn't there, so. Okay, so I'm getting, help. I'm getting, I'm getting to that. Okay. Is that Paul says? I mean, the gospels say it was the women, you know, Mary and Martha, who saw Jesus first. But Paul says it was Cephas. Oh, okay. At least I got the right answer. Okay. So, okay. But Paul says it was Cephas who it was the uh, the disciple Peter. Well, that's a clear contradiction. Well, was he the garden gardener or whatever? I mean, how do I don't. Yeah, see, stop it. Okay, so that's 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 a that's a clear contradiction. He's not going down the rabbit hole, right? I promise I'm not. So you know that's a clear contradiction. I mean, here's the gospels that say that the women were the um, were the first to see the the risen Savior, and then Paul says that but Paul wasn't there, right? So Paul was there. So the... see that? See, I would get stuck on that right. part of right. So I, I think you got stuck on the the authenticity of the facts i would get stuck on the fact paul wasn't even there you know right, what i mean right like so and and you know that, that is that you know and that was the first thing that came to my mind was that paul wasn't there but that i couldn't stay there because paul got that from somebody right okay because we're in a talking culture that's steeped in oral tradition exactly okay or as we know today gossip right so the question then became for me was then, okay, if you have clear contradictions like this, and this is, and I have to admit, this is a small one, but if we're going, if, if I, as a, uh, as a, as a, as a Christian minister are going, is, is teaching people that the gospels and the Bible as a whole is a historically reliable document, then I have to be able to clear up clear contradictions like that. Okay. Because it is a clear contradiction. You cannot say in one place that these people were the first to see the risen savior. And then somebody else in another part says, no, this person, this person was the first to see that's a, if it's a historical event, then there needs to be some kind of accuracy. And so you're right. Right. Cause Paul didn't have exactly. Instagram. And so, you know, uh, that wasn't the first one that I, that was just, but there were many others um, that, you know, I, I couldn't, I could not reconcile. And so when you, like I said before, when you make the claim that this is a historically reliable document, you have to be able to clear up contradictions like that to rescue that claim. And that was the other thing that, that really bothered me was, you know, um, I spent a, um, a great deal of time trying to rescue not the truth of the Bible, but rescue what I believed the Bible was saying or my claims about the Bible. Mm. And the, what I came to realize was that. So your leap of your leap of faith became too much. Well, of a Exactly. Leap. And so what I was going to say was, you know, um, you know, I couldn't help but recognize that I was defending not the Bible, but my claims about it and my claims about it aren't inspired, <laughs> you know? Uh, well, okay. that. so what am I doing here? Okay. And I, and I clearly couldn't do it because there were, 
And then you have to ask yourself why. Well, is it yeah, a threat? why is that? A, why is it a threat? Um, and it, it's interesting that you say that because I was thinking about that um, on my drive home too. Is it's a threat because you know questions like these um, are the kinds of questions that historically the church has not been too uh, amenable to. You know, to the point. We're back to my need for a high IQ church. <laughs> okay. um, and 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 there are, and, and there are answers to those questions that don't necessarily have to lead to disbelief, but just a different understanding about you know the nature of the of the of the scripture, you know. Yeah, I, I definitely because for me, um, when I got to that point of. Uh, being really inquisitive about the text it was late late high school mm -hmm. early college and that's how I ended up you know doing religious studies in college because I had so much uh you know it was just this bridge between what I'd heard in church and what I was reading a bunch of stuff in here that y'all ain't talking about mm -hmm. um that's here and one of the hardest things for me to get people to do is read the New Testament in the context of the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. I'm like, you all read this like it's the beginning of the story. Right. Mm -hmm. Instead of it is the continuation of a much larger cultural right. piece. And if you put it in that cultural frame, you come away with something totally different right. because you have you know, the issues of assimilation, you have war, you have all kinds of conflicts and human, human story. Right. You have just human story. And so by the time you get to the New Testament, it seems very legalistic if you don't put it in the context of the larger picture. Right. And my fear is that so many people get stuck in the legalistic mm -hmm that they forget the humanity of the biblical right. text. And in that, I think the way that, that we even defend the text, as you even talk about that, it, it becomes way too much about legalism and not about the humanity because everything in the text has to do with the humanity. And the purpose is supposed to be the bridge for humanity. Right. And it becomes totally this something else if we're not careful to remember what it is and why it is that we claim this thing that we call the Bible to be a literature piece over a whole lot of time mm -hmm. in a whole lot of cultural context that we cannot frame from the way we live mm -hmm. now, but we bring with us the morality, the integrity, and hopefully the dignity that is supposed to come from the text, but somehow it becomes the book that becomes the bashing right. of shame. Um, so I think we have to, to go back and look at, you're right, how we interpret it, um, but not only does God really need defending, mm -hmm. um, you know, the thing that, that amazed me my first semester was I had a professor of Old Testament. And I'm absolutely fascinated with the Old Testament. I had a professor of Old Testament and the first day of class, he walked in. He said, I just want y'all to know before you even start this class, if your God cannot withstand mm -hmm. inspection, what kind of God right. do you have? Exactly. And there were people that got up and walked out. And I was like, oh, that's mm -hmm. awesome. You're right. Because if, if what I really believe... It should be able to withstand exactly. inspection. It, it should be able to right. stand. And, you know, there were people that couldn't take that. They literally could not take that as a frame of starting the conversation and the academic right. journey. And so, uh, but yeah, you're absolutely, you're, you're right. I think, um, I, I don't mean to, to make you go backwards, but I, I guess I have to, excuse me, I have to, um, to make some things clear, uh, at the okay. um, at the beginning of this particular conversation today, uh, I, I said that I was an ordained minister, but I have to be 
uh, honest and say that, you know, I have not really ministered in any uh, church um, for probably about uh, 10 years now um, because I don't believe, you know, the best way to describe me now would be an agnostic atheist. Um, now, for those that don't know all these okay. words, can we get a, can we get a yes, working I'm definition? I'm glad you asked that because whenever I say that, or, you know, whenever you use any type of label, people always have, going back to what we said earlier, they have a preconceived idea of what that is, what it means, and how you are as a person because you identify as that. Um, so I guess I'll explain first what um, what an atheist is. An atheist is no more or less than someone who does not believe in God. Okay. Now, um, I have to explain that because there are some atheists who will tell you that they know for a fact that God does not exist. I am not one of those. Okay. Um, I am a person who, uh, like I said, I'm an agnostic atheist. And all that simply means is that um, I lack a belief in God, but or gods. I don't believe in one God or many gods. Um, it's not just the Christian God, but it's the Hindu God, the Jewish God, the Muslim. I don't believe in any of them. Um, but I don't claim to know that any of those gods don't exist. I just lack a belief. Um, and, and I think you described it perfectly a while ago. You and I are looking at pretty much the same in, uh, the same information, the same data as far as uh, religions go. Uh, but we come to different conclusions. Um, uh, so, but, so I'm not saying that I know for a fact there's no God. Um, I don't know that. And that's the agnostic part. Uh, and uh, many people say, well, I thought an, uh, an agnostic and an atheist were two different things. And in the common, in common conversation, that is true. Um, people who identify as purely agnostic are people who um, will tell you they don't know if there's a God and they don't think that anyone can know. But they won't go so far as to say that they don't believe. Um, and then you have those who are purely atheists who will tell you, you know, I don't believe in God. Uh, and as I said before, they, some will tell you that they know for a fact there is no God. But I think this is a, um, a gross misunderstanding of what those those two words mean. Uh, this goes back to what we were talking about earlier, being analytical about every little thing. Um, an agnostic is someone who says, I don't know. All right. Um, if you look at the, the word there, there are two Greek words, ah, which means not and gnosis, which means to know. So you put them together, and it's someone who does not know, all right? So if someone were to come up to me and say, hey, Steve, is there a God? I will say, I don't know. If another person came up to me and asked me, if, do you believe in God? I will say, no, I don't, okay? So I've, I've sort of put those two things together to accurately describe what's going on in my head. I don't know if there is a God. And because of my ignorance of that, I find no foundation upon what to build belief. Um, so let me just say right there, thank you for not bringing this topic of gathering. <laughs> Trust me, I'll, I'll probably, it'll probably come up next time I come home. I better get my chicken before it happens, okay? <laughs> And now, yeah, I'm sure now that we have done this, um, yeah, I'm sure it'll be a topic of conversation. Right. But just please let me get my yeah, chicken and yeah. some foil before it happens. Make sure I have the foil right. before it happens, okay? Because I need to wrap my plate up so that I can eat later after all of this happens because I, I need to be like spectator right. number one. But go so ahead. Uh, with that being said, I guess I need to also say that um, 
I've kind of hinted at this, but you know, all atheists are not the same. Um, you know, I'm an agnostic atheist. You have those who are what's called um, strong atheists. Those are the people who will tell you that there is no God and I know it for a fact. Just like there are people who are strong theists who will tell you that there is a God and they know it for a fact. Um, but all atheists are not the same. Uh, there's some, the one thing that unites all atheists is a lack of belief in God. But, you know, this is something that's been going on for, for a decade. Or more. So do y'all have like conventions or something? I'm getting to that because I'm going to. Oh, I'm getting, who knew? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll get to that. I second. was being facetious, but apparently yeah, I'll, there's I'll, a place I'll, for that. I'll, I'll get, I'll get to that. So, um, you know, um, there are all, the one thing that unites all atheists is the lack of belief in God or gods. <clears throat> Once you get past that, it is a literal uh, crapshoot. <clears throat> Excuse me. There are atheists who don't believe in God but do believe in ghosts. Um, there's atheists that don't believe. You know what? Stop that. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. I mean, I, it was. I mean, you know, I was. Just... You believe in as our South Carolina family says. You believe in hate. But you, okay, you know what? <laughs> so, but yeah, I mean, there are some who there are some atheists who don't believe in God and wouldn't step foot inside a church, but they swear by their spiritual advisor. You know, uh, I you know we not even gonna go down that road. <laughs> uh, so you have just not even playing those numbers. Yeah, I mean, you have um, you know atheists who um, are. Uh, you know, politically liberal. You have some that are politically moderate. You have some that are politically conservative. You have some who are, you know, atheists who are racist. You have gay atheists. You have straight atheists. You have, but I mean, anything that a human can be, there's an atheist for it. Okay. Hey, you know, I was I was being serious. There are people that play the numbers by like the the sermon text. Yes, that's I, a real thing. I know, I know. Um, I'm just saying. So the other thing <laughs> that the other thing that I found interesting is that you will find uh, atheists in many of the world's um, religions. Uh, there are many atheists who are Buddhists. Wait, there. Do you realize what you just said? There are atheists in the world's religion. Yes, and let me explain. There are Buddhist atheists. There are Buddhist atheists. There are Jewish you atheists. You know what? I can't with you. I no, can't. Ser I'm, I'm serious. I'm, I'm, I'm not kidding you. There are Buddhist atheists. There are Jewish atheists. There are Muslim atheists. That's like chicken-flavored tofu to me. Yeah, and there are... Just eat chicken if you want chicken. Enough, there are atheists <laughs> with inside... The Christian Church. Now, let me let me kind of explain that because I know it 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 sounds like I'm, I'm you know, being stupid, but I'm I'm being actually very serious. I, I, I'm, I'm being. I'm being I'm, I don't doubt it exists. It just it sounds to me like chicken flavored right. tofu. It just so sucks. let's let's like just if you want something that tastes like meat, right. eat meat. So let's start with um let's start with the the atheist Buddhist. <laughs> okay, so. So um, I guess this was the this was the first place where I found out that there were atheists in other religions. Um, was yeah, Buddhism? Because I, I. So they still put the fruit out well, or no? Well, here's let me sort of, sort of explain to you how I got to this. Um, you know, okay. I was uh, as I said before, you know, I was a, I was a practicing ordained minister. You know, preaching and teaching, so on and so on, and and it came to a point where, just as a matter of honesty, I had to um, stop doing that because I couldn't, with uh, integrity, tell people that I believe something that I actually didn't. And so, uh, just like anyone else that finds themselves in a new uh, type of experience, you you wonder, is there, is there anyone else like me? And I was doing some research on that, and. Um, I came across a certain podcast where this uh, atheist podcaster was doing a, a show on Buddhism and I was listening to it and there were these two atheists who were practicing Buddhists and when they explained it, it made, it made perfect sense to me. You see, um, from, the, uh, from, the, from the perspective of a Christian um, or 
Muslim or whatever, you know, you look at other religions and you say they're worshiping, you know, false gods, so on and so on. Well, in Buddhism, um, Buddha is not a god. As a matter of fact, um, even though uh, Buddha, uh, I'll call him Gautama because I have a real problem with the word Buddha. Gautama was his, was his actual name. Gautama was, um, was a product of his time. Of, uh, of ancient India and um, ancient India was a polytheistic uh, polytheistic uh, area of the world and um, so when he formed uh, what we know now as Buddhism uh, he never denied the, um, the the whole spiritual realm of gods and demons and heaven and hell and all of that he just didn't so he just made a well, no, no, no. Let me finish. He just didn't think they were important. Okay, he never really addressed okay. the issue, and I, I can sum it up in a in a in a in a parable that he that he told once. It's called the parable of the arrow. He said uh, one of um, he and his disciples were uh, traveling through the countryside. Buddha had disciples. Yes, he did have disciples. So was he copying Jesus? Uh, I don't know how you copy someone who hadn't been born yet. Okay, so Buddha was before Jesus, yes. but he had disciples. Yes, he had um, about... You know you're making this really problematic, but yes, go right. ahead. So anyway, uh, he and his disciples were traveling through the countryside. and um, Buddha and his disciples. Correct, okay. correct. And um, by this time, uh, Gautama had become pretty well known as a, as a um, good, spirit, um, wise spiritual teacher. So this man came up to him and he said, I want to be your disciple, but before I need for you to answer some questions that I have. And the man started asking all of these, you know, existential questions, you know, what, what is life after death like? Is there a God? So forth and so on. And uh, Gautama let him finish and he told him this story. He said, once there was a man who was shot with a poisonous arrow and uh, the air, the poison that the arrow was laced with was slow acting. And his family and friends <clears throat> were racing around because they knew that the time was limited. They went and got a physician who knew how to counteract the poison that he had been um, shot with. And the man, as the doctor was about to remove the arrow, the man grabbed the doctor's hand and said, doctor, before you remove this arrow, I need for you to answer these questions. What type of arrow did the archer use? What was the shaft of the arrow made of? Did he use pheasants, fer uh, pheasant feathers, duck feathers on the end? What was the resin on the bow that he used? Did he use for the string? Did he use rabbit intestines? Did he use deer intestines? And once you've answered that, I need for you to answer this question. Where was the man uh, coming from? What was his name? What are his people like? And he had started answering, asking all these questions. And the doctor stopped him and said, sir, what would you rather have? The answer to all of these questions or your life? Okay. Um, and so uh, I say, I tell this story because it, um, it's a beautiful story about, you know, kind of what we've, what we've been talking about here. I, I saw myself in the, uh, in the man who was asking all the questions and um, it resonated with me because, you know, I, I often wondered, you know, do I really have to believe all these things to live a good, happy, moral, decent life? Um, and the question, the answer to that question is no, I don't. Um, but getting back, see, I would take that so opposite again mm -hmm. because I would, I would take the, the priority to be the life over the necessity of having all of the answers. Well, see, that's that's the, that's the point that that uh, Buddha was making, is you know, um, and I think there's, I can make a case for this uh, biblically, but this is the thing that Buddha was saying. It's like, you know, all of these questions that you're asking ultimately are unanswerable. 
And what's really important is how you live your life as a human being in relationship to other human beings. Uh, and that's what he said he could teach the man. And the end of the story is the man became Buddha's disciple. But getting back to what I was talking about, um, Buddha is not a, a, a god. He's not in the, okay, let me, be, let me be accurate. In the earliest forms of Buddhism, he is not worshipped as a god. It's only in later uh, manifestations of the so him becoming he, so him becoming a deity is a more more current yeah I won't say current but it's it's a later development okay okay but in the in the earliest uh, iterations of the um, of the uh, of the religion he's not so the parable of the arrow um, is sort of encapsulates Buddha's understanding of what we would call the spiritual the spiritual realm. He doesn't deny the existence, but he doesn't see it really as important um, to, um, to to living a good, uh, moral, decent, and happy life. These are things that are ultimately unanswerable, and um, you know you can spend your entire life trying to find the answers and not find them, and then end up being miserable because you know you wasted all that time trying to figure out. Now, is this like, um, uh, what's the guy's name? I should know all of this. You know, I read these these things many, many mm -hmm. moons ago. The guy who, who went through this whole journey of trying to find all of the answers in his version of heaven was dying with and finding out his dog right. was there. What was that I guy's can't name? remember. Well, but you yeah. know what I'm talking about? It's not the Bhagavad Gita. What is that uh, one? The Bhagavad Gita was, is the one... Um, it's the Hindu text. It's the one that has Arjuna in it, where he's uh, he and he's about to fight a large, a big battle, and one of the Hindu gods takes him up, and pretty much shows him that you know fighting the, the war. Yeah. So who's the guy? I with can't the remember. Oh, that's gonna bother yeah. me now. I I I tell people all the time that they that you know want to talk what they think is me. I'm like, dude, I have forgotten way more than you probably have ever read. Right. So, um, but anyway, uh, as I was saying, this, you know, uh, in Buddhism, Buddha is not worshipped. As a matter of fact, if you, um, uh, I would direct anyone to read uh, the Dhammapada, which is a collection of uh, Buddhist sermons and the uh, it's called the Pali. Oh, now we're going to use the word sermon. Yeah. So, um, I, I mean, and, and can you can you not make my head hurt anymore? Okay. So I will. He's use, got disciples, uh, and now we got sermons. Okay. I'll I'll be nice. They're a collection of his lectures. <sighs> Thank you. <laughs> They're a collection of his lectures. That it? makes me feel better. And um, you can also uh, read the uh, what's called the Pali Canon. And that is a oh no, not a canon. Well, canon in the sense is this collection of books, you know, uh, the Pali Canon, which is just a, a collection of his uh, teachings from the time he was so-called enlightened until his death. Next thing you're going to tell me is there's books of the Bible that ain't in the Bible that are really books of the Bible. Well, you know there is this one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know, right? Um. I had somebody try to ha explain to me why the Catholic Bible wasn't a Bible. I'm like, it is a Bible. Mm -hmm. But anyway, getting back to what I was saying. <laughs> I know, uh, right? Yeah, getting back to what I was saying. Um, well, you know, these two people that were on this podcast, once they explained that, and I, um, and I listened to them talk about um, their understanding of the Buddhist tradition, I started digging in myself. And I was like, yeah, it, it is, it is perfect. So you actually like that as, um, as a thought process? Well, let's, let's put it this way. I understand it. I won't say that I like it. Um, okay. I understand it. Um, but intellectually, it makes sense. Intellectually, it makes sense. And I'll, and I'll explain why. Because if, if, if you're coming from a point of view where, but well, it's really an agnostic point of view. I don't know about all of these extra-worldly spiritual things that the other religions are talking about, so I can't deny or confirm them. So let's focus on what makes, you know, human existence good 
here. You know, I can get with that all day long. Um, so it, once they explained it that way and I started doing some digging and it kind of confirmed what they were saying, um, you know, the fact that there are atheists who practice Buddhism, um, you know, it, it, it didn't make my head hurt anymore. What did, you know what, you're giving me a good bit of, as to, to the, the rapid increase of vegans that are not practicing quote unquote any religion and this is it sounds like they're on the same right um kind of thought right. process and so and so okay well thank you for right. that clarity. so um you know i said there were atheists who were jewish uh you know these are people who will celebrate the sabbath they'll go to synagogue you know all of that uh celebrate the sabbath in their home with their family so forth and so on but as far as the religion itself, they don't believe a word of it. And now, how is that even possible? Because it sounds like you're. It, are you saying that they're doing it as more of a family tradition or a ritual, but with no? Because even if it's you saying it's ritualistic, it still has to have some belief behind it. So how it's and a family, why it's a, they're doing it as a family tradition? Yeah, it's something okay. that they. Um, like Sunday right, exactly. dinner, it's something that's kind of it's a it's a time for okay. the family to get together and share their tradition and so you know the thing that brings them ties them together historically and culturally so forth and so on. But as far as all of the spiritual stuff uh, behind it, they don't believe it. Uh, same thing with many. Uh, Doesn't that make them hypocritical? I don't think so. I don't think so at all. Um, I think what. See to me that seems very hypocritical what, because if I if you're showing up I'm thinking that that you're at least trying to understand. Okay. So for me I don't think it's hypocritical because what would make them hypocritical is if they said they believed it and did not and continue that, okay, that would make so them not believing but showing up for the ritualistic component of it you think that's just about the the family yeah, time yeah kind of i don't think uh, yeah okay, i think well. if 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 you've divorced your if you've openly divorced yourself um from you know the belief but you still want to use the ritualistic aspect of it to continue a tradition that ties your family and you uh, ties you and your family together to a larger culture i don't see anything at all but when when you become a hypocrite is when you pretend to believe it and you really don't. And that's kind of what I wanted to talk about next because there are some Christians who... Uh, well, that was my next know. thought because it, it sounds like what a Christian would define as right. a sinner. And so there are, some, there, are some, there are some people sitting in the pews who, you know, Sunday after Sunday, year after year, who will, you know, go to church and sing the songs and pray the prayers and listen to the sermons and so forth and so on, but they don't believe any of it. But they never, buy, they never in. buy in. They never and the it. other shocking thing, I mean, you know, I hope you're sitting down is that many of these people are up in the pulpit. <sighs> you know, you can't just let this be. Can you? <laughs> So for those of you all don't know how Stephen and I operate, this is kind of how we operate. We always have like that one point that we're totally setting the build up for. And I don't know how that became part of how we communicate, but it's always there. And so I just fell for it. He just, he reeled me right into that statement that he knew was just going to be that statement and a lot of y'all were trying to figure out why is she in this conversation this is just how we talk we just talk um and and to truly be an apologetic christian you do have to really know enough about other traditions and religions to be in the conversation or you really haven't become a good apologist right and that's just um, and that was how I got invested in the religious studies journey of learning. I thought I was going to be learning more about the Bible. And they said, well, no, you have to learn, you know, this bigger literature 
um, approach to all of the religions before you can truly hone in and put it in a context. I think it really increases um, increases my um, my sermon preparation to something that is totally different from the regurgitation type of sermon. Um, but what Stephen just did to me is, I think, going to be our stopping point for today. <laughs> <laughs> because um, maybe that'll be a good point to start off with next time is to talk about um, clergy and how invested clergy may actually really be um, in what they market themselves to be or to believe. Um, I think that's an open can of worms. And I know that that's why you did it because you want that can of worms no, um, to be nice. Huh? No, I, I, I didn't. Well, I'm lying. Yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh. No, I, uh -huh. knew, I, knew, yeah. I knew it was See what had happened was. was I knew that was going to be a controversial topic because when, um, when I, like I said, you know, the reason I, I, I led with, you know, once I entered into, you know, I was a preacher who no longer believed, you know, I was like, well, is there anybody else like me? And my first, um, you know, experience was, I mean, my, my first bit of information about that was with the Buddhists and it just sort of led me into the, into the Christian church. And when I found out that there were actual pastors and teachers who were standing in the pulpit preaching Sunday after Sunday, who didn't believe anything that they were pre I mean, I was in shock. I, I literally had to put the, put the information down that I was reading and go take a walk because it, 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 it never really dawned on me that not only was I not the only one, but I was, there were people who will tell you, behind closed doors. I'm a pastor, but I don't believe anything that I'm teaching or preaching. So I think this is going to be where we pick up next time. Okay. Um, because I think that's an, uh, there's so many angles to that because there's not only um, the theological piece, there is the integrity piece. Right. There is the uh, business branding and marketing piece. Yes. Um. And the, we can't leave out the economic piece. Yeah. So um, I think this is going to be our point of uh, stopping for today. Mm -hmm. And and we'll talk about um, talk. We'll start out with clergy mm -hmm. that are in the Christian tradition who may or may not actually have um, the level of faith that they market themselves to have and what that looks like um, maybe historically and modern mm -hmm. day. Um, I think that's a good segue into um, how you and I have come to these different points. Um, and it's a good continuation in the, the talk on okay. theology. All right. Well, thank you for your time today. And thank you for uh, putting that hook in my mouth and <laughs> reeling me right on into that one. Uh, anytime. All right. Have a good one. We'll, we'll talk, talk to you next bye. time. Bye.